everyone, this is Kike with Psyche Podcast, and this is episode 150. I sit down with one of my previous professors from my graduate program when I was getting my master's in mental health counseling at Capella University. We discuss one of the founders of the psychotherapeutic movement, one of the disciples of Freud, who later ventured out, Alfred Adler. We get into his history, his theory, and some of his practice, how to think about Adlerian psychotherapy from a practical perspective. It was really great connecting with Dale. He is a wealth of information and wisdom and just a really sweet and nice guy. Uh, when, When I think about a model of healthy masculinity, someone who's encouraging, uplifting, and tries to always empower people, I'm always reminded of Dale. And so in some ways, he's a type of mentor and a type of ideal that that I try to strive for. I hope that you enjoy this conversation. I hope that you get into Adler and his work. I, I, I know that that many who listen to this show are more in line with Freud or Jung, but I think Adler is someone worth interacting with, learning from, and maybe even putting into practice. Uh, if you're a psychotherapist, or as Dale mentions in the episode, just a type of life philosophy that could be good for not just your immediate influences, but but the larger world. I hope that you guys have a wonderful holiday with friends and family, and I look forward to connecting with you in the new year. Please continue the conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast, Psyche Podcast. I'm really excited just to reconnect with you. I know you were one of my professors at Capella University when I was doing my graduate program there and uh, really resonated with you as a person and your approach. I I know that the intended goal of this conversation is to get into Alfred Adler and maybe a couple other things. But before we jump into that, would you mind for the audience just introducing yourself highlighting a few things about you, and then from there, we can launch into a conversation. Sure, KK. Um, and I, re- I remember you, you you stood out in my mind as well as uh, just a really interesting person, particularly thoughtful and a good student too, by the way. And also had a, a, a one of the reasons I was kind of, uh, you stood out to me was because I specialize in helping men with sexual issues. And I know that you're primarily focus your practice on men. Yeah. And so that kind of helped me to, to kind of make a little bit of a connection with you. But yeah, um, I'm, I'm, uh, about 60, I'm 61 years old. Um, I'm a white guy for those of you who, since you don't have camera going on, I'm a white guy. Um, and kind of slightly rotund a little bit. Um, I'm not as in good shape as I used to be, but I like to think that my mind is still in good shape. And uh, so I started this field uh, 40 years ago. Wow. Um, actually, 41. Uh, when I was 20 years old, I was in my bachelor's program in psychology, and I was on a psychiatric ward observing, and I remember the nurses wouldn't let me out of the psych ward because they were teasing me, saying, how do we know that you're not a patient? So oh, man. That was, my, that was my initiation to this field. And so uh, I started, started this in, in, when I was 20, 21, Got my bachelor's degree, uh, then in, in '85, my master's in '89, and then in 1999, I got my PhD in counselor education and supervision from Ohio University. I live in uh, a suburb of Indianapolis, so yes, I am a Colts fan. Um, 
You're in Houston, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. We're oh, supposed we'll to like the Texans, but I guess they've done a little bit better this year, but they've been terrible the, the last well, few that, years. That's what we're counting on. Uh, you know, so, so hopefully we'll make it to the playoffs this year. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I've, I'm, I'm married, been married uh, almost 40 years, and uh, I have two sons and four grandchildren. And I'm fortunate enough that um, my wife still kind of likes me a little bit. There you go. Four- and then also, um, both all four of my grandchildren are within like a 20, 25 minute drive. And so they can drop in on me anytime. And their age is uh, 10, 9, 8, and 7. Two boys, two girls. And so nice. I just love it. only thing I love better than being a counselor educator is being a grandfather. Mm. And it's, it's like being a dad all over again without all the mistakes. You know, I can, and when I make mistakes, I can just say, well, you know, I'm grandpa. And so, and just load them up with sugar and send them back home. You know? so <laughs> yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where I am. Um, but we talked a little bit about you know you know I'm an Adlerian, so I started my Adlerian journey when I was a child. I mean, my, I had an Adlerian typical Adlerian family. Really, and I didn't didn't know at the time, but so my mind is kind of steeped in Adlerian theory by experience. But I didn't know though my family didn't know is Adlerian theory. But when I got into my PhD program. Um, my mentor was Tom Sweeney, who is a, a leader in the, in the Adlerian field. He had a really good book uh, called Adlerian Counseling. By okay. The way. Thomas Sweeney. It's a really good book. It kind of gives a brief overview of, of Adlerian theory all the way through, and it shows how applicable it is. I love Adlerian theory because not only can I practice with it, it works really good with my clients. I can teach with it, teach Adlerian theory using, using Adlerian pedagogy. I mean, that, and I can supervise with Adlerian theory as well. And then I can even consult with Adlerian theory. And, and so I put all those together. I don't have to learn all these different theories. I learned Adlerian theory, and it fits. And it fits me. It fits my lifestyle. It fits the way I view the world. It fits just all these different areas. And also, Adler... I mean, if you really want to understand current counseling theories, if you understand Adler, you'll understand the current counseling theories because he is foundational to almost every theory that's out there. Um, so to get into a little bit, you want to talk a little bit about his history? Yeah, kind of kind of where, where I was hoping we could start in terms of his history is, is actually, you know, and, and maybe where, where I really want to kind of go for a second is his split from Freud. If, if, if there's yeah. anything about that that you can share, but maybe even before that, can you talk about, I don't know if you know any, if you know much about his childhood or, or how he got into the field of, at the time, I guess it would have been psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, he was, he was born in the late 1800s, died early in the, in about, I think around 1937 or so he had a heart attack. He was in Scotland giving mm. some lectures. And died there. He was, so he's pretty young. You see, so that would have been he was sixty-seven when he passed away. Okay. What he didn't write as prolifically as Adler, I mean, as Freud did or Jung did, you know. Um, but his ideas are kind of adopted into much of society because people kind of resonate with his ideas. But when he was uh, approximately four years old, he remembers a first memory that he had. And he was in bed with his brother, and his brother died in the middle of the night. And so mom called in the doctor, the physician, to come and and, uh, see what was going on. And he heard the doctor tell his mother, well, Alfred's going to be dead by morning. 
And so can you imagine that? You're this little boy, four or five years old little boy, and you hear, he's, you're going to be dead by morning. Wow. And so, and so that was a first memory for him. And he's and Adler says these first memories are pivotal, key to developing our our career choices, developing our lifestyles, of developing, um, you know, kind of our basic attitude about life. And so he said to himself, I'm going to conquer death. Mm. And so how did he conquer death? He became a physician, right? And there so you go. Phys- physicians conquer death. But what was ironic is Adler um, in German means eagle. And so he became an ophthalmologist. Ah. So he was working on the he was working on the front lines of World War One as a medic in World War One, and he was seeing all this stuff going on, and it kind of led to a, a lot of his cementing his ideas of equality. He fought for the the enlisted men to have the same food as the officers in the Austrian army. He he fought for equality in the in the educational system. He fought for equality in the um, in the marketplace uh, that you shouldn't oppress people, pay them small wages, you know, and make them work long hours, you know, that kind of idea. And so equality is a big thing in Adlerian theory. Also, Adler was the first president of the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society. That's Freud's Psychoanalytic Society that Freud started. Well, Adler was the first president. And they didn't really get along very well. In fact, Adler and Jung kind of broke off uh, out of that psychoanalytic society. And nobody knows for sure. Was Did, did Freud break it off? Did Adler break it okay. off? Supposedly, Adler carried with him a card from, uh, like a postcard or a note from Freud saying, you know, something kind of like you stabbed me in the back and so mm. I'm going to get rid of you. I don't know the truth of that. I, who knows what the reality is that I don't see that any place. That's just kind of urban legend. You sure. Know? Yeah. But and, those are always yeah. interesting, right? Yeah. And so, and so we had a lot of people in that first society. Uh, there was Sigmund Freud. There was Wilhelm Reich. There was Otto Frank, Carl Abraham, Carl Jung. I mean, these uh, are giants. Jung. Yeah, these are these are all people that started it, and it all. So this our field started pretty much in Vienna, in Vienna, Austria, and pretty much by uh, middle-aged Jewish men. Yeah, you know, and but most of these men were not traditional Jewish. You know, they didn't necessarily follow traditional Jewish customs. They they went different ways with their uh, Judaism. And so it's really kind of, kind of interesting, but also he influenced um, Maslow. Okay, uh, Maslow was uh, one of his students. Also, Eric Fromm. Yeah, um, I know. I've, I've, I've gotten really into Eric Fromm lately, and I was excited to find out how much Fromm had been influenced by Adler. And I can totally see yeah. it with his idea of social interest, which I want to get into in a little bit. But yeah, yeah, and see, and there was uh, Max Wertheimer. Let's see, there's another one, Kurt Kafka. Wolfgang Kohler, all these, all these were, um, and who's the guy that did, um, um, that was in the concentration camp, did logotherapy. I can't think oh, of Oh, Victor name, Frankel. Yeah. Victor Frankel lived around the block from, uh, Alfred Adler. Wow. So they rubbed quite a bit too. Um, but a lot of these people, these last ones in particular that I mentioned, they kind of immigrated to the United States during world war two. Okay. Um, and so, you know, um, and so it, it kind of coalesced. Uh, 
before this is roughly before World War II. It was before when you could get out, you're Jewish and could get out of Germany and get out in time. Sure. You know, and that's, so that's kind of where they kind of coalesced here in the United States. And Adler had a speaking engagements all over America. It was very famous during that time. And one student that really stood out that came to several of his speaking engagements was Carl Rogers. Mm. And if you put Carl Rogers and Alfred Adler together, if you put their writings together and their ideas together, you can see, they're very much very similar. And I think Carl Rogers kind of put together a lot of Adler's ideas, you know, and he systematized it and also he researched it. Um, you know, Adler wasn't really good at researching. He was more of a clinician. Okay. You know, type of thing. So he researched a lot of it. But here's the, here's the kicker, which is really cool. Um, many people consider Alfred Adler to be the first feminist theorist. Really? Yeah, so if you look at uh, Carol Gilligan's work, sure, you know she created feminist theory. If you put a lot of her her work next to Adler, you'll see a lot of similarities, and she kind of systematized a lot of his feminist thinking. His wife was uh, a feminist. Adler's wife was a feminist. She was the leader of the Communist Party in in uh, Austria mm. and in Vienna in particular. And, you know, who really knows? Did he influence her? Did she influence him? But they had a loving relationship. They got along well, married for a lifetime, um, didn't seem to have particularly uh, marital issues. And so I think they kind of influenced each other. And then and then here, here's an, another one. I'm trying to think. It's She's an educator, and she's from Italy, I believe, or from France, um, starts with an M, and she has these schools all around the United States. It's a type the, of the, the Montessori. Montessori, yes. There's there's two competing stories about her and Montessori. Is that they were friends and they communicated back and forth with each other, shared a lot of their ideas together, and so Montessori education really fits well with Adlerian edu- with Adlerian theory in terms of education. But then another competing thor- story was finally they got them together. Adler didn't know French, she didn't know German, and they just said hi and left each other alone. <laughs> you know, I mean, who really knows, you know, uh, what the reality is there? Because you get to see these different stories sure. about people. But, man, Adlerian theory and Montessori education just fit together so well. Because Adler, in Vienna, in Austria, he set up schools in Austria that he wanted to teach his theory to teachers mm. and get it involved with children early so that he would change society. And so he changed us. He changed the course room from the classroom from sitting in rows to sitting in circles. Okay. And so, and so that's kind of how he did, how he did his counseling. We are equals. Mm. We're on the same level. So you see feminist theory there, you see Rogerian theory there. And, and so we are equals. And so I'm not, you don't pay me money to, to sit here behind you and just say, uh huh, uh huh. And just write things down and do just free association or that type of thing with you. We're here to for me to be involved. I'm going to be an active person in your life. And by that activity, we're going to grow together. Because there's no assumption in Adlerian theory that the Adlerian counselor is has her life all together. Right, know? right. Or there are some assumptions, some theories like, hey, the counselor is a guru and got everything together. But no, not at all. And here, here's another thing that's kind of interesting. Um, Al- Albert Ellis, he's oh, yeah. kind of like he's kind of like Adler on steroids. He was a member. <laughs> of, 
he's kind of like a member of the Adidarian Society. And, you know, I, I don't admire Ellis's crassness, but I admire his, his uh, theory quite a bit. Sure, I do, I do as well. The rational emotive behavioral theory. Yeah, yeah. And he says, and he says right there in some of his writings, he says, I credit Adler for my ideas. I mm. mean, so Ellis, Ellis really credited Adler. But here's one that a lot of people don't know. And I have, and if you need this, I've got a picture of this letter. Okay. This letter is from Aaron Beck. He was invited to be a speaker at the North American Society of Adlerian Psychology. He wrote back and said he couldn't attend. And in the body of the letter, he said, I consider myself to be an Adlerian. Oh, wow. And, and he was the founder of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or one of them. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so, and so, and you can see that because Adlerians, current Adlerians, They'll use Gestalt, they'll use uh, CBT, they'll use REBT, they'll use RT, they'll use Rogerian theory. Very few of them use Freudian theory. Sure. They'll, they'll even use Jung, but they always do it with Adler's, Adler's ideas in mind. Okay. You know? So, like, I will use empty chair, uh, you know, the Gestalt technique of empty chair. Yeah. I'll, I'll use that, but I won't use the way a Gestaltist will. I'm not looking for the same thing. Gotcha. I'm looking for the thing. And so... Adler is very influential, and I encourage I encourage people, even if you're not an Adlerian and you don't want to become an Adlerian, if you read him, it'll help you understand some of these other theories, where they came from. And Adler himself said, I don't really care if I get credit for this. All I care is that my ideas continue on in society. Okay. I like and that. Yeah. Yeah. They have. Because uh, I don't know if you're, you're a young guy, so you may not know. I'm, I'm uh, almost, I'll be, I'll be 38 next Friday. Really? No, congratulations. Thank you. You look very fine. Oh, well, thank you. But anyway, uh, I don't know. So you're probably mildly aware of the Brady Bunch. Oh, sure. That's Adlerian theory through and through. Uh, that taught Adlerian theory through and through. You know, so who, who was it? Uh, Cindy. And, uh, who, was, who was the top ones? And Marsha. Marsha. Yeah. Firstborn, right? That's birth order. Firstborn, they did everything right. You know, they were in charge of everybody. Next, come, next comes... Uh, comes um, Jan, and she's like, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Everything's about Marsha, you know? And we, nobody remembers who the middle guy is um, on the Brady Bunch because uh, middle, middle children tend to kind of fade into the woodwork. Right. Know, but then we have Cindy and Bobby, the cute ones, you know? And so Cindy could get anything she wants just by flashing her smile and doing her puppy dog eyes and her cute little lisp that she had, you know? And so she could get everything she wants. And Bobby... He's just trying to keep up with his brothers, you know? Yeah. And so that birth order is just, people understand that, you know, if you look at our, if you look at our uh, national presidents, the presidents of the United States, the majority of them were first born or only born. Fascinating. And, and so it's really kind of amazing. You know, if you look at Obama, people said, people, people said for a long time, he was, he was an only born. And it was for a while to have found out that he, I think he had some half siblings or something. Yeah, that's but right. He was raised like an only child, so a firstborn person. Firstborn and only born are really very, very similar. Only difference is the firstborn, I mean, the only born is never dethroned. The firstborn is dethroned. Okay. So that makes a little bit of difference. But then also, people understand the idea of inferiority complex, superiority complex, compensation. You know, oh, he's compensating for that. Oh, yeah. People understand these things. And these all came from Adler. All these ideas did. Sure. And so it's, 
really cool. What are you going to say? No, no. So, so maybe one way to kind of ask a big question is if we're thinking about where an Adlerian therapist might start with a client, but, but even taking it a couple steps back, if we're just thinking about maybe psychopathology in general, um, for those who don't know what that is, just, just how we conceptualize maybe what's, what's the presenting problem or what's quote unquote wrong with this individual. Although I don't like that language, how might Adler theorize, yeah, this, this idea of psychopathology, what, what trips people up? If, if he sure. is deviating from, you know, from Freud and sexual conflict and all that, what, what, where, where does he begin? I think that might be an interesting place to start. Well, and, and since you brought up Freud, let's, let's do a, let's do a, a quick contrast. Okay. Freud, you, Freud, you can add her a quick contrast. Perfect. And this is a very simple way of understanding it. Freud believed that your conflicts were inward, it, ego, subregal, right? Right. So, so if you, if you, if you're doing like a, like a, a visual, it would be, Freud is inward. And then Jung, he believes your your problems are mainly, you know, cosmic, you know, trying to get in touch with the, the higher order, the higher power. So he's upward. So Freud is inward, Jung is upward, and then Adler is outward. Okay. So pathology, psychopathology, then in Adlerian theory, is problems going outward, you know, problems with society. In fact, he says a, a psychopath, a pathological person is a discouraged person. Mm. So one of the main techniques that Adlerians use is encouragement. And we're not talking cheerleading, like, yeah, yeah, you can do it type of thing. Sure. But like, what strengths do you have that you can exploit to bring, to bring you to grow? And what challenges do you have that you need to work on? You know, so rather than saying, saying, hey, let's just look at your problems all the time, but say, hey, where are some things going great for you? So you can see also there how Adler kind of set a foundation for solution focus yes. theory. You know, let's look at the, what's going right instead of what's going wrong. In fact, Adler would say, what would happen to you right now if, if what would happen to you if I cured you right now? Mm. And that was a diagnostic question that he would ask people because they see that as that's what's blocking them. Okay. What they want. So let's find out what's blocking them and let's get them moving on their goal. Remove that block. That's see, that's, that's also feminist theory right there. Yeah, totally. What are these institutions that are keeping people down? And so, and so that's kind of, kind of the way that he views pathology. Psychopathology is the discouragement. And so an encouraged person is not pathological. A discouraged person is pathological, you know, and discouragement shows up in lots of different ways. Depression. Yeah, I, I was wondering what would be some of the sources of discouragement in a person's life? How would he kind of think yeah. about that? Yeah, the discouragement is, is, can show up in depression, can show up in anxiety. You know, you see it's in anxiety. It's because, like, do I have the ability to do this? Mm. You know, second guessing uh, yourself. Yeah, like that. And so, and so you can see how, you know, and relationships, you know, your relationships not going well, what's wrong with me? You know, I keep, I keep dating losers, you know, those kinds of things. Sure. Um, you know, I'm on my third marriage, you know, what's wrong with me type of ideas, you know, so, so you can see how discouragement really plays out. And so there are some Adlerian ther- therapists who do this, uh, counselors who do this, which is kind of interesting. I've never done it, but for every hour that you have to see them for counseling, you have to sh- demonstrate that you've done one hour contributing to society. Oh, wow. So it's however that would be like, 
like volunteering your time at, you know, at an organization, picking up trash for an hour, you know, something that they said for you to see me for an hour for counseling, I want to make sure that you're giving back to society. And so they would do an even exchange on that. And, and that's kind of cool because that's really cool. Because if you see, I can contribute to society. I can make things different by my simple actions. That's going to lead to a lot of encouragement. You know, I guess I'm not as bad as I thought I was, or as so-and-so tells me I was, or my dad said I was, you know, sure. I'm a much more worthwhile person than what, and what, uh, than what I've been led to believe, you know? So, um, you're asking kind of about the counseling process, you know, how do we start? Yeah, well, well. so e- even before that, and another question that's coming up is in terms of like the horizontal and encouragement, maybe maybe, maybe we could explore for a little bit uh, his idea of social interest. And, and I think you've already maybe touched on it a little bit, but but maybe you could do your thing on that. What, what did Adler mean by social interest? Because I think that's one of his key ideas. Yeah, and I don't know German very well, so I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this word. I was hoping you, you would make me say because I'm not sure how to pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard it pronounced so many different ways. Gemein Gaschipul or something like that. Gemein Gaschipul. It's it's not a really a it's a word German word that's really not translatable. Okay, and Americans have translated it in English, and it doesn't really capture what what Adler means. So it's it's like. It's like interest in others, interest in community, interest in yourself, capability, encouragement. It kind of, it kind of, all those things all kind of go together, you know. And so, and so, you can see then if a, if a, if an Adlerian counselor says you've got to go do something to contribute to society for an hour to see me, you can see how that's fitting into an Adlerian treatment plan, sure. which is to increase your social interest because you're not going to be sitting home waiting to talk to me for an hour. You're going to be out doing something. Yeah. And, and I can't remember the quote exactly. So I'm going to butcher a little bit that, but Adler said something like I can, I can cure depression. He was kind of joking, but it was serious too. I can cure depression in seven days. If I can get you to think about somebody else, the first thing when you get up in the mm. morning, which is kind of an interesting thought. Um, so his idea was you got to get out of yourself and into other people. Okay. You know, got to be a contributor to society. It's not all about you. In fact, in fact, he made a joke. He makes a joke that he, he, he used to say with some of his uh, patients had schizophrenia and they just felt like people were watching him all the time. And he says, he would say, you are so lucky when I go outside, not even a dog notices me, you know? <laughs> and so, and so he, so it's kind of like, kind of like, um, the whole universe is against me. Mm. That's kind of what paranoia is. Sure. And, and so imagine, imagine that if you got that whole, a whole world, the whole universe is working and plotting against you. How narcissistic is that? Right. Right. So, so he's really saying our problems, our psychopathology is narcissism. Mm. It's what it is. We got to get people thinking outside of themselves, thinking about other people, helping other people, instead of just commiserating all the time about what's wrong with me, you know, or, hey, I can't figure this out until I see my counselor type of thing, you know. 
And, and, and so sometimes in a person's life, the Adlerian counselor may be the only person in their life that offers them encouragement. Mm. Because they, maybe they just live in a very discouraging environment. Yeah. And so, and so that kind of leads to, you know, the stages of the Adlerian counseling process. Okay, the first one is relationship. The first stage of the counseling process in Adlerian counseling is relationship. Your ability as a counselor to make a relationship with that client and that client to reciprocate that relationship. Okay. Now we're talking a professional relationship here. We're not talking, we want to keep our boundaries. Sure. So we're talking, does this, does this client really believe that you care about them? Do they really believe that you are important to them? And do they believe that they are important to you? Mm. And so when you're with somebody, you're an Adler counselor, your world is this person. There's nobody else there. And that has to be conveyed to the client. That's the first stage, that that relationship. So does that sound like Rogers? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So and can I ask you real quick, in, in, in all your years of, of doing this work, n- not that we can reduce it to a few strategies, but but how have you found that you've been able to convey that interest and uh, maybe even affection toward your clients in, in the ways that you were describing Adler would want us to start with? Yeah, you know, and and I'm sure you found this as you've as you've been researching theories, and also as you become more and more theoretical, you know, as you grow in your in your process. Um, Adlerian theory is not just something I turn on when I'm in the counseling office. Sure, I mean it's become kind of a, a way of looking at life, a way way of living, and so it's not an artificial thing. So when I'm in the counseling office with somebody and I'm building this relationship with this person, it's not, it's not, okay, hey, you pay me to be your friend for 50 minutes, you know? Yeah. It's not, it's like, you know, there's other people in the world besides me. There's other people in the world besides you. And we're going to do what we can to make this world better. You know, I, I got a job one time off a, just a real simple job. It was just a couple of years and doing some outpatient counseling. And the guy asked me an interesting question in the interview. He said, he said, do you have any, any friends from like when you were a kid, like grade school or something, you still have some of those friends? I said, yeah, I do. And he said, what about, what about high school? You got some of those friends still? Yeah. And he said, what about college? You got, you, you hang on to friends. I said, yeah, you know, when I make a friend with somebody, I really don't ever think about it ending. I mean, to me, a friend is kind of like a person that I, that will acknowledge each other for life. Maybe, for a short time, maybe for a long time, but when I run to him again, I try to pick up where I left off. And I said, in fact, I really don't know very many enemies. I said, I'm sure I have some, you know, I mean, everybody does, but, sure. but they, most people seem to get along with me and I get along with people pretty good. And he, he was banking on that ability to make relationship because Adlerian theory is proved over and over and over about what is the most important thing in counseling and that is the relationship. Mm. You know, I mean, I mean meta, theories, meta studies show this over and over. Oh, yeah. The ability to connect with your client and to have that working relationship is healing. That's what makes the change in the relationship. And yes. so that's exactly about the job. He's like, uh, so you, this guy knows how to make friends and hang on to friends, you know? And so, and so Adler, see, Adler, he's everywhere. Of course, I wear Adler in glasses, so I think he's everywhere. <laughs> 
It, it, it is but, interesting, right? Because I think some of the things I've read is, at least in some circles, while the the name Freud or, or Jung is, is more recognizable, at least in the world of psychotherapy, Adler's ideas and theories probably permeate Yes. Maybe even more than theirs in terms of modern psychotherapy. Yes. Yeah. Um, everyone, here's, here's what Adlerians is, what we say about Adlerians. Everyone who's practicing counseling is an Adlerian. <laughs> it's just how much of an Adlerian are they? Got you. And so if you cannot practice counseling with bringing in some of Adler's ideas. It's mm. impossible. And if you notice uh, if the, the neo-Freudian movement, they have become more relational. Right. They have relational psychoanalysis now. Sure. That's certainly along the line of, of Adler. Yeah, no, totally. Right. So, okay, Dale, yeah. what, what, if the first phase of Adlerian psychotherapy is establishing the relationship, I know we sometimes call it the therapeutic alliance. What would be, right. the, what would be the second stage or the second step? Yeah, there's, there's four stages. The second stage is psychological investigation. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to then find out you know, what's going on for you. And there's several ways we can do that. We can do like early childhood memories. We could do genograms. We can do biopsychosocials. You know, whatever it is to, to understand this person better and help them to understand themselves better. So it's a, a psychological investigation. Is this where exploring birth order might come in? Yes, very much so. Okay. Birth order, um, early childhood recollections. It's early childhood recollections are very important. Yeah. Let me share. One. Let me share you with you an early childhood. Yeah, please. And let's see if you can hit it Adlerian style. Okay. okay. So um, I remember I was like about five years old, maybe six years old, and we were in somebody's backyard, and this was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I remember that. It was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in somebody's backyard. They had an in-ground pool. I saw my brother, my older brother, oldest brother, driving diving off the the diving board, my next older brother, I don't know where he was. He, I know he was there. And my two sisters who are both older than me. So I'm the youngest of five were sitting on the edge of the swimming pool. And so, you know, I went down to this, to the edge of the swimming pool. And, you know, on, on some swimming pools, there's like those half moon steps that go down into the pool. So I'm walking down there. And next thing I know, I'm, I'm looking up and I'm in over my head. I mean, and I don't know what's going on. I've never had this experience before. And I don't recall being scared or anything. But the next thing I remember is my sister diving in, bring me up, set me on the edge of the pool. And I'm kind of <coughs> coughing a little bit. But no one ever says anything to me about it. You know, I'm not chastised for it or anything. It's just like, you know, that's that was life. Wow. You know? So if you were an Adlerian and you're kind of looking at looking at what what you think I learned from that memory that maybe I still might use in life today. What do you think? I, I mean, the, the, the thing that, that comes out to me would be that there are others out there who are going to come and help you and support you yeah. when, when you're, yes. when you're really in a, in a tough spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and so now you couple that with, with uh, birth order. I'm the youngest of five. Okay. So what does that mean? I had four plus parents. I had six people to take care of me. Right? Yeah. <laughs> no, totally. Now, and I'm sure with that, there's probably a shadow side or, you know, there, there, there's there's uh, things that you probably had to work on, you know, so that it wouldn't be uh, a negative or debilitating, I'm sure. What's the shadow side of that memory? I think the shadow side of the memory is that, you know, and this is what I was also thinking from my perspective is that, you know, you're going to be rescued. 
when, mm-hmm. when, when you're in danger or trouble, like there's others that are going to come in and rescue you. I said it. I said it in the memory. I said I was in over my head. Ah, okay. Yeah. So sometimes I may not realize I'm in over my head. Mm. But that's something I've had to learn to work That's a good on. point. Yeah. See, so, so, all, you know, and Adder says we have memories for a reason. We remember the memories for a reason. Men, there's no such thing as a random memory, even short bursts of memory, mm. just two, three seconds of memory. They all mean something. You know, we're all working towards a goal. We're teleological here. Okay. Working towards- so, so, so let, let, let me ask you this as a, as a quick, maybe a side, but, but it's connected to where we're at in our conversation. Did Adler have a theory of the unconscious and then dreams? Or, or is that one of the ways that he deviated from Freud and Jung, who had very different views of those things oh, yeah. themselves? Yeah, all, three, all three of them have very different views of dreams. You know, Gestalt has a view, different view of dreams. Adler, Adler considered dreams and early recollections pretty much to be the same. Okay, I wondered same. about that. And, and what he, he believes, you remember, it's called individual psychology. Yeah. So it is. Not, and it's not because of, it's an individual, because of the holism of the individual. So he viewed people as a whole. And so, therefore, your subconscious is not at odds with your conscience. Okay. Like it is. Okay. Okay. So your subconscious and your conscious are all moving towards the same goal. So if I found some, find, if I'm not there and I, you tell me something that's in your subconscious, it's also going to be the same in your conscious. Gotcha. The goal is going to be the same. Okay, so same with the dream. So if there's a dream, he oftentimes said that a dream is practice for a future event. Oh, interesting. Okay, you think about a dream like, man, what what does this mean? What am I? Is there something I've been anxious about that maybe I need to practice in my dreams? He says our brains never turn off even mm. when we're sleeping. You know, so we're working. We're constantly working on our goal even while we're asleep. Sure. You know what? What is the goal that we're working for? Yeah, no, I could see that. Okay. So, yeah, and, you know, Freud doesn't necessarily agree with that, but that's right, I mean. right, right. Okay. So there's, there's building the relationship, there's psychological investigation. Yep. Next is interpretation. Interpretation. Okay. Okay. So the way we interpret, 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 yeah, the way Adam interpret is um, we call it uh, educated guessing or clinical guessing. Okay. So, like, say for example, uh, if you were my adoring counselor and I gave you that, I gave you that memory, you would then guess a little bit about what that did, and you did guess, you know. So you did interpretation. So you said, could it be that from that memory, this is now the way you kind of view life? You expect people maybe to help you out, you know, and, and you expect to be a social person because you had all these people with you all your life. You've not been an alone person. So interpretation. And, and also, what goes with interpretation is the loss of fear of being wrong mm. by the counselor. If you're a counselor and you're worried about being wrong, Adlerian theory is not for you. Adlerian theorists, we will guess, we will interpret, and if we're wrong, guess what? The client will correct us, and now we'll get the real information. We're always going to be collecting data. I love that. And so even if we go down the wrong wrong rabbit hole, the client will correct us and say, no, that's not what it is. But sometimes the client will say, you know, I've never really thought of it that way. And it opens up a whole new area of thought for them. Sure. And a whole new being. So interpretation is really important. But these aren't just like, 
this like off the cuff stuff. This right. is theoretical orientation, that okay. interpretation. So you know, consistent with the theory. Okay. So okay. that's how the interpretation is, and not like Freudian theory where every 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 spike of the phallus or something like that. You know, every chimney sure. of the phallus. No, because everyone believe that tells us more about the counselor than it does about the client. Okay. When you say what it is, you know, got you. You say, could it be such and such? So we approach the client with with inquis- inquisitiveness. The client is the expert on the client. Okay. You know, I'm not the expert on the client. Sure. Now, now, Dale, so, I I should have probably asked this during the first phase when you're describing building the relationship, but I'm curious how Adler would think about transference and counter-transference, if those are even categories that he worked with? That's definitely. Well, it's all about sociability. Okay. okay. So transference is the client is just feeling more social with me. Counter-transference, I'm feeling feeling more social with the client. Let, let me give you an example. Sure. I was doing a, I was doing a, a psychiatric triage at a hospital down, down the street here, and this young, this woman about my age brought in her mother who said her mother was suicidal. Mm. Okay. So I dismissed the, the daughter. I'm talking to the mother in, in the exam room and we're kind of chatting. And before we know it, we're both yucking it up and laughing, you know, and, and, and I'm thinking, oh, this, she doesn't need to be put in the hospital. She's not suicidal, you know, all that. And I, I get back to write my notes before I release her and before I talk to the psychiatrist and I'm, I'm writing my notes. I'm like, that's my grandmother in there. Mm. That's who that is. That's my grandmother. So that's counter-transference, right? Sure. I'm putting my own stuff on her. And so that's counter-transference. So I pull over one of the other counselors. I go through my evaluation with her about what I saw. And I said, I'm interested in counter-transference with this person. And I want to make sure that I'm making accurate clinical decisions. And so we go over my case. And like, no, you're right. You're right. And she's not suicidal. It's okay to send her home. So I confirmed that with a psychiatrist. Psychiatrist says send her home. You know, so... So counter-transference doesn't necessarily mean there's something pathological. Okay. Me, like Freud. Freud would say there's some unfinished business in there. Right, right. Need to be, say. No, it just means I'm connecting with that client on a different level. So an Adlerian counselor then sometimes may tell a client, if it's therapeutically effective, if it's going to be therapeutically effective, might tell a client, you know, when you say such and such, I feel such and such about you. And maybe no one's ever told that client that, you know, and that may be a real revelation for them. And because we assume the way the client treats us is the way they treat everybody else in society. Yeah. It may not at first, but over time, as that relationship grows, they're going to treat me like they treat their other, other people. So if they're going to be, if they're going to be testing me, that means they test other people. If they're going to be accepting of me, that means they accept other people. If they reject me, don't like what I say, they're rejecting other people. All that's data, all that's information for my interpretation and my and the fourth step of the counter process, which is reorientation. Reorientation. Okay. okay, yeah, what is that? So now that you know this about yourself, this counseling that we've been doing, what are you going to do about it? Mm. Okay. So awareness is everything. Once you are aware, you can't hide from from your problems anymore. Once you're aware, you can't hide from your mistaken goals or your fictions. You once you are aware, you have to do something about it. Okay. Now you may choose to say, "I'm not going to do anything about it," or you may choose to change. And that's what reorientation is. We can't make people change. All we're doing is leading them to the water. We show them where to drink. You know, they've taken a drink. 
You know, do they want to keep drinking or do they want to stop? Okay. That's their choice. And that's the way it is anyway. Yeah. With anything, you can't make people come in for counseling. It's no. Not, you know, and so, and so that fourth is a reorientation. So now that you know it's about yourself, how are you going to reorient yourself towards being a more productive member of society? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. No, totally. Totally. It does. Makes a lot of sense to me. So, so okay. I, I definitely have some practical questions around like, uh, Adlerian therapeutic interventions. But before we do that, just going back to some some theory for a second, can you explain what he meant by an inferiority complex? And then, you know, I've done some reading that he would talk about wanting to move towards superiority, but I know that that language can be kind of difficult to understand or maybe problematic. So yeah, maybe you could explain that to us, the inferiority complex and, and what is that drive towards superiority that we're all on? Sure. Yeah. He, he says everybody struggles with inferiority. Okay. Uh, no matter how, who you are, where you are, how old you are, you know, and that's what, that's what either in counseling is for is to learn how to cope with that inferiority and how inferiority starts is in the animal kingdom. Humans are about the only animal that is born totally defenseless. Right. You know? And so here you are, you're this pre-verbal uh, human, and I think this even applies to gestation, even before birth. But okay. anyway, um, so you're this pre-verbal human, and you have these giants in your world doing things for you, okay, to help you survive. They're protecting you, they're teaching you, they're doing all these things. And so you say to yourself, even pre-verbally, you know, am I going to grow up and be like them, mm. or am I going to continue to let people just take care of me? And so that would be an example of a pampered child. Okay. A pampered child, someone who just doesn't want to do anything, everybody takes care of them, and now says a pampered child ends up being a hated adult. Yes. And so and so that's that's a that's inferiority. So if we if we insist, oh I can't do anything myself, you gotta do it for me, that's that pampering, that's that inferiority complex that's taking over. Now, that inferiority complex can also swing the pendulum all the way to the other side to superiority. I don't need anybody. I can do everything by myself, you know, uh, I'm, I'm an island, or if to put it the, in the way of the Beatles, I'm a walrus, you yeah. know, way you, want. you know, so I don't need anybody. Mm. It's still inferiority. It still is inferiority, but it's expressed differently. So so a person with superior co- superiority conflicts is complex actually maybe be more inferior than a person who is a pamper or, or who has a real inferiority complex because they're hiding it. They're trying to push against it and act like they don't have it, you know, but everybody has inferiority. Nobody is a hundred percent perfect. You know, everybody's got weaknesses. Oh everybody's yeah. Got to work on everybody, even you and me. We can oh, absolutely hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, and so and so that's where inferiority and superiority complex, and so that's where compensation comes along. Gotcha. Okay, so I'm inferior, so I'm going to compensate with this inferiority by X, Y, whatever it is you know, I'm going to do. That way, it makes me feel superior. Yes. So I don't feel inferior. But inferiority is the root of narcissism, is it not? Oh yeah, I mean, you have, absolutely. You had that. You had that person with that narcissistic, childlike wound, and it's really particular in men. You know, men, you see that sometimes, KK, I'm sure you see it oh, some yeah. of your clients. Where they have, you see that little boy sometimes who's like, who was put down, who was hurt, somehow emotionally, physically, you know, whatever, psychologically. And that's that's the 
center of narcissism. That's that inferiority. Am I still really worth it? Mm. You know? Am I still worth loving? Am I still worth people caring about? Can I still contribute to society? Those kinds of things. I'm, so, I'm really glad that you brought up man and masculinity because I, I think the inferiority complex can really apply to the way that many men are in the world. The, 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 the ways they behave, the, the ways they think sometimes when it's when it's more on the toxic level can be, I, I think, a type of compensation in the ways that you're describing it. Yeah, it, you know, I call it kind of the, the male tournament syndrome. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm beating my chest. No, you can beat your chest harder. So I got to beat it harder. You know, I've got to show everybody I'm a such and such kind of guy, you know, sure. kind of thing. And, and Men are in competition with men, and mm. and and Adder says we don't need to be. He said what we need to be is friends with each other. We need to encourage each other, you know, and, and try to work on these things that that put us down. This maybe these things from our childhood or wherever they came from. Sure, you know? I really so, like that. I really man the message that men don't need to be in competition, but they need to be striving toward greater friendship. I think is so powerful. Oh, yeah. You know, at, at the root of men, at the root of us men, what do we want when we're home? We want peace, do we not? Yes. Yeah. And so when we hear our kids fighting or yelling or something, we just calm down. Right. Just get quiet, you know. Or if we have a spouse who, you know, is maybe a little pushy, we're like, just, just relax. You know, it'll get done type of thing. And that's what we want in our in our homes, so why wouldn't we want that in society too? I mean, yeah. it just makes sense to me, you know, that at our core, we are really meant to be peaceful people. Yeah. I love that. And, and can I speak a little phallically? Yes, please, a, please. I know you've been talking about the phallus. Sure. Reading about that. Um, and, and to me, uh, that, that hardness of a man that, you know, I've got to always be in competition. I've got to be showing that I'm a man is expressed in male genitalia. Yeah. You know, we are, we are 90% of the time in our genitalia, 95% of the time we are soft, right? We are soft. And that's, and that's what we're meant to be. A man who's always hard, who has a constant erection or whatever words you want to say. Sure. It's a grotesque person. Yeah. What is a preapism? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a medical condition, right? You know, and and so and even to a, a sexual partner of a male, you know, it's kind of a grotesque picture to see your sexual partner always have an erection, right? I mean, I mean, is that what you want all the time? You know, it's no, I think like, it's a great there's, point. There's more to men than sexuality or sexual expression. There's more to us than that, and I think a lot of men we lose that in our society because. We feel like we have to be superior. We have mm. to overcome the inferiority complex by showing everybody how tough we are, how masculine we are, all those different things. Yeah, I think you're right. It, it makes sense to me. And sure. it's just out there. This is all out there. Some of it's mine. But that's just, to me, it just makes makes sense. We need to stop fighting. I mean, war is, is organized conflict against your brother. Yeah. And, you know, we need we need peace in our, in our society and in our world in particular. Yeah, that's and great. That, that was what that was what Adler saw in World War One. We were mm. working on the lines. You know, he started out his theory of what is all about power. Everybody's striving for power, but as he worked his theory more, he got to where it's not about power; it's about cooperation. Yeah, you know, it's about cooperation. Cooperation 
is really what we need for our society to go well. Yeah, I love well. that. So, okay, so, um, let, let, let me ask this question. I mean, right. as, as we're talking a little bit about masculinity, you know, e- even apart from that, I wanted to ask you how Adler thought about the concept of power, because I, I know that's kind of an important concept in his thinking. If, mm-hmm. if, if a lot of men, this is a bit of a caricature, you know, probably have a, an idea of it being power over other people in a dominant mm-hmm. kind of way. I wonder how Adler would help us think about power. Well, he, he used to, in the beginning part of his theory, if you, if you got to be careful when you read this theory, because if you read his early work, it is all about power. Okay. That's kind of where he parted ways with Freud initially. Um, and so power is not where it's at, um, but power happens all the time. So for, for example, you know, the firstborn and the secondborn often are different from each other. Oh, know? yeah. So firstborn, maybe they're really good at science and math and stuff like that. The secondborn may be good at arts or athlete, athletic or something. And because that firstborn has set a pace for that second person, okay? And so now, how am I going to be noticed, you know? And so sometimes the firstborn and secondborn may have a lot of power, may have a lot of conflicts with each other. You know, and they've got to get past that and say, you can be your person. I can be my person. We can be siblings. We can be together and we can appreciate each other's strengths. You know, sure. And so power is, he says, comes from the very beginning. You know, who are your first playmates when you when you're the firstborn? Who are your first playmates? Your parents. Right. Yeah. Yeah. These are powerful people. They can tell you what to do, what not to do. You know, they can spank you. They can do whatever they want to to you. And so you kind of pick up that image like, wow, if I'm big, I'm powerful, Mm. you know? And so how you deal with that now as an adult, realizing that that's probably not true. That first thing that I picked up that bigger is always better. Sure, sure. Um, And so so then you get into a little bit of of Yoda thinking, you know, size (laughs) type of thing. Right. And so... And so power, he kind of did away with that a okay. little bit and more towards socialization, being, being responsible to society. Sure. That's what's important. Well, you know, because one, one of the things I was thinking, and, and maybe this is not necessarily in line with, with his actual theory, but, but I think it could be consistent with it, is in the more um, postmodern and feminist approaches to therapy. I really like one called relational cultural theory and therapy, they talk about relational empowerment, which I think is close to what he talked about when it comes to social interest and cooperation. It's about mm-hmm. working with others to build them up and mm-hmm. and to help them feel better about themselves as you're working on yourself at the same time. Yeah, he had, he had three steps to a harmonious life. He said these three things, if you have these three things, you're going to be a more harmonious person. In other words, you're going to get along better in society. First one, is self-acceptance. I accept myself as I am. The second one is confidence in other other people. So I accept others as they are. Mm. Third one is my contribution to others. I make a meaningful contribution to society. So I accept myself, I accept you, and together you and I are going to make society better. That's a harmonious life. Okay. Is a- I like that. that. That's what you got to look for. Okay, great. So, okay, Dale, maybe as we come to an end, you could describe some of your favorite Adlerian therapeutic interventions that you use with people. I, oh, I, sure. I remember from some of our, like, there, there, were, there were a few that were really good. I can't remember what they were called, but 
but I know there's a couple that are pretty fun to think about. Yeah. Well, there's, there's one called spitting in the soup. That's the one. <laughs> yeah. That the one? yeah. That's a fun one. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where, you know, it, you know, you're eating your soup at the restaurant and it tastes great. But if you found out the, the, the server spit in it, it doesn't taste good anymore. Does mm. it? No, no, it, it, nothing's changed. I mean, you've already eaten some of it after they spit in it. And, and, but nothing's changed. But once you find out, it's just not as fun mm. or not as tasty, not as palatable. Okay, so th- this works well. It, it is pointing out the motivation of the person to the person. Okay. But not trying to stop them from doing it. Just pointing out their motivation. And, they're, and, it's, like, and it's like, wow, I've been given permission to do this and I know why I do it. Is it as much fun anymore? Yeah. Like, an example might be, say your child takes crayons and colors on the wall, okay? And uh, there's lots of different ways to do that. If you're going to do, do that in a spitting in a soup way, and either you might do it, you might say, we'll call him Bubba. Okay, Bubba, that was great. You know, I love what you did there. <laughs> call in some neighbors and have them come and look at it, and they can comment on it about how wonderful it is. And in fact, Bubba, let's do this. I want to make a frame for it. And I'm going to put a frame around it on that wall so that so that people can just say how wonderful of a job you did there on that project. And if that's not enough for you, Bubba, this is what I want you to do. <laughs> Next time, come and find me and we'll do this together. Mm. And, and I'll I'll put it on a piece of paper so that we can carry it with us and take it different places. Okay? And so I'm not telling Bubba he shouldn't throw on the wall, right? And, but I'm making it less fun for him. Oh, yeah. You know, so why did Bubba do that? Probably he missed me and wanted to spend time with me. Okay, mm. so that's the third process right there. He's getting what he wants. Come and find me, and we'll do it together. You see? Yeah, that's great. And so, and so that's spitting in the soup. It's just not as, not as much fun, you know, anymore once you find out what that happens. You know, and there's also um, lifestyle analysis, which is early childhood memories type okay. of things. Those, those are a lot of fun. I love doing early childhood memories. Uh, they're just so rich. And, I do too, yeah. It, and people people like to talk about themselves, you know? Yeah. And they like to talk about these memories. But as an Adelaide, we're not concerned if the memory is 100% accurate. We don't care about that. In fact, I would probably say this is a safe statement to say no memory that anybody has is 100% accurate. Yeah, I, I tend to see it that way too. Yeah. And, and so, and so you have this childhood memory. You've been thinking about this all through these years. You said you're 34, 38. I can't remember. I'll be 38 next week. So 37 okay. technically. <laughs> so let's say you had a memory when you were five. So for 32 years, you've been thinking about that memory. You've been putting your adult spin on that all totally. the time. So now this memory has changed and evolved over time. And that memory fits the way you live now. Yeah. See, does that make sense? Oh yeah, so Totally. Memory, yeah, my memory of, of almost drowning in a, in a pool, you know, that may have been totally different. In fact, I was talking to my sister about that earlier uh, uh, this month, and she says, oh, no, I'm the one who saved you. It wasn't my other sister. <laughs> I <didn't laughs> she remembered it. I didn't, I, think she, I didn't think she remembered it. And so, and so it was, could have been totally different. But the, I, over time, I've thought about that, and I've adapted my life to that memory, and that memory has adapted itself to my life. And so it's kind of intertwined. So I love memory analysis, early early childhood recollections, dream analysis, those kind of things I think are a lot of fun. And then another one is if only. If know? only, okay. 
Yeah, tell or me about acting, that one. Or acting as if, and maybe is a better way to put it. Okay, so a couple comes to you for counseling, and they're having a lot of fighting. They're having a lot of disagreement. Okay, so here's what I want you to do between now and next week. I want you to act as if you aren't you aren't together anymore, and you're just starting out a new relationship, and you don't know anything about this person. And so I want you to go out on a date and act as if you know nothing about this person and try to get to know this person all over again. Kind of an interesting way to do it. Or that you can is. say, act as if you're in love. Mm. You, know, you can do that. And, and see, and see, and come back and give me a report next session. How did that go for you? So acting as if is really a pretty cool thing. And that came from a philosopher named Val Hinger, I believe. And I think it was called acting as if or something like that. Okay. And after said that's where he got that idea from, you know, because, because, things will often turn out the way we want them to turn out if we act as if the way we want them to turn out. You know, like dressing for success. Sure. You know, dress like your boss. If you want to be like your boss, you know. And we so we imitate people that we want to be like or imitate activities that we want to have or actions that we want to have. And eventually they take hold. Yeah. That's what is behind that. Those are pretty, some pretty cool ones. There's, there's a lot of different ones. Those are a couple of my favorite ones. Okay, yeah. Actually, well, well, Dale, I, I think that's come kind of to the end of, of what I wanted yeah. to explore. This has been really fun and great, and, and it's been good to think about Adler this week as I've kind of prepared for this conversation. Is, is there anything else that you would want to share but before we come to a close? Well, if anybody wants to join the North American Society of Adler in Psychology, they just go to alfredadler.org. And uh, if you're a student, your first year is free. Okay. And, and so you'd be a full member for the first year. After the second year, they'll ask you for money, and it's up to you if you want to continue or not. But um, Do they do I conferences would, and things like that? Yeah, we have annual conferences. We have what's called TAP Talks. We do those on Thursday evenings um, where an Adlerian will speak or groups of Adlerians will get together and talk about just over the phone or over Zoom or something, just to a topic that was Adlerian-focused. And, yeah, we do CEUs. And there's also an international one called ICASI. Okay. And they they go to different countries every year. They come to the United States every five years. Um, and it's kind of cool. It's, a, it's kind of like a, a week-long camp. Oh, nice. And you have to be a counselor. You could be anybody. Kids are invited. They have activities for for kids. All folks around Adler in theory. But, and they have activities for adults. And then they have conferences as well at, where you click, click CEUs. But it's kind of nice. It's just a big social camp meeting for a week, for lack of a, a bad thing. We're all going camping for a week. <laughs> no, that's cool. And it's kind of a neat idea, and and it's cool when they do it in other countries. So there's other languages involved. They try to incorporate more than just English, and they try to have translators okay. available. So nice. we want to make it a worldwide thing, not just an English thing. Sure, sure. Well, well Dale, yeah. thank you again for your time oh, and, and your wisdom and your insights. I really appreciate it. And, yeah, I, I hope you have a great uh, holiday time with your with your family and, and, and a great start to the new year. 